Hello and welcome to Skynet Today's Last Week in AI podcast, where you can hear us chat about what's going on with AI. As usual in this episode, we will summarize and discuss some of last week's most interesting AI news. You can also check out our Last Week in AI newsletter at lastweekin.ai for articles we did not cover in this episode. I am Andrei Karenkov, one of your hosts. I finished my PhD focused on AI at Stanford earlier this year, and now I work at a gen AI startup in Silicon Valley. And I'm Jeremy, I guess the other host here, and I'm the co-founder of Gladstone AI, which is an AI safety company. We do a bunch of technical AI kind of alignment research, stuff like that, and uh, extreme risk policy work. And yeah, um, if I sound a little bit different, by the way, I'm not in my usual rig with my usual setup. Uh, so I apologize if the audio isn't quite as as wonderful as I would love for it to be. Uh, but it is nonetheless great to be here, Andre. We have a really, really intense week of news. Yeah, this time will be a lot of research to cover. So we'll try and you know get through all of it. And as usual, there's quite a, a few little iterations on uh, apps and things you can use. So those will be pretty fun. Before we get into it, we want to address some listener comments. In particular, there was an email with someone asking if there is a sort of TLDR version of this usually very long podcast, which uh, is understandable. So uh, we do have a text newsletter that you can sort of just browse real quick for all these stories. And we are pondering creating TLDR episodes using AI. Just take the transcript, you know, summarize it do some <laughs> synthetic voice generation. Uh, so we were thinking about it. Let us know if you would like a TRDR version of like a 10-minute summary of the highlights of each episode, and we might start putting those out. We'll see. We also uh, haven't gotten too many emails or Apple reviews lately, so do feel free to email us at contact at lastweekin.ai with any thoughts or suggestions or corrections. And feel free to leave us five stars in case it helps people discover us. I don't know if it does. I actually, by the way, I had a call with uh, a listener a couple of days ago. And it was, this guy's a, a lawyer. And he pointed me to a story that I like had not been following on the legal side. So so shout out to, uh, to Mike Justice. Um, and we'll be covering uh, that story. I thought that was really cool. It's, it's a rare pleasure to be able to talk to people who actually listen to the show. Yeah, and uh, story suggestions, things to cover, are uh, also very welcome. We've had a couple emails with highlighting of stories right. that we did cover, so feel free to send us that as well. And let us go ahead and get into the news with our first section, Tools and Apps. And the first story is Reka or Rika launches Yasa One, a multimodal AI assistant to take on ChatGPT. So Rika is an AI startup founded by researchers from DeepMind, Google, and Meta, so pretty strong team. And they, yeah, have launched this multi-model AI assistant, which is essentially what ChatGPT4 is. It can understand images, short videos, and audio snippets. So it's actually a little more multimodal than ChatGPT. It can be customized on private data sets of different modalities. It supports lots of languages. It can provide answers with context from the internet, process long uh, context documents. So it can do a lot. It's actually quite an intriguing new chatbot that I could see potentially being more useful than ChatGPT for some applications. 
Yeah, and this is a really interesting play. You know, I, I often talk cynically about the prospects of companies that haven't raised much money, that they can't, you know, muster the kind of compute resources that like a you know open OpenAI or DeepMind can uh, can muster. I think this is one of those cases. Um, Rekka's only raised about fifty, I think fifty-eight million, something like that, in their Series A. You know, a, a little, a lot less than that in their seed, obviously. Um, so it's it's a very kind of funding constrained uh, team right now. And they raised that money back in June, so that you know they're they're not they're not flush for cash right now. Uh, so that immediately places them in a fundamentally different class from OpenAI, from Anthropic, from DeepMind, from even uh, XAI, um, which you know stockpiling huge amounts of GPUs. And so the question then becomes like, how do you compete if you can't pre-train a model? If you can't train a model that has the depth of kind of world knowledge that a GPT-4 has, how do, you comp comp how, do you, how do you compete? What's the axis that you choose? And it seems like the axis they're choosing here is, oh, well, we'll just be more multimodal. We'll offer you a, a greater kind of, let's say, breadth and less depth. This may be one way to think about it. Um, they seem self, not self-conscious about this, but more like self-aware of it. Uh, one of the things that their, I think it's their, um, yeah, their company statement said is, we're proud to have one of the best models in its compute class, but we're only getting started, right? So this is implicitly an acknowledgement that, yeah, you know, like we're not competing directly with GPT-4, we're not competing with front, true frontier models, um, but we're making this very interesting play. And I think this is really one of the few plays that you have left if you're going to try to compete with the, the GPT-4s of the world, you know, the Palm-2s, the Geminis and stuff like that. So really interesting to see what Rekka is up to here. This is really cool. What they're describing as capabilities is more than I would have expected at the scale. And that surely reflects the, the capabilities of the team. That's right. Uh, this is currently in private preview, so you are uh, not going to be able to use it. Uh, it is going to be available via APIs for some enterprise users, so we can see it, uh, you know, uh, powering products. And as you said, really, you can't do this with existing APIs. So, for things where you need audio or even image uh, explanation, this might actually work better. And they do also note that they trained Yasa One from scratch, including everything, uh, which is pretty impressive. And does it does go back to a funding question because training ChatGPT from scratch costs, I think, tens of millions of dollars. Like it's a big task. Yeah. So it is very possible that this is smaller, and perhaps even has less training data because that's another bottleneck for doing things from scratch. But definitely a company to keep an eye on. Up next, we have Arc Browser's new AI-powered features combine OpenAI and Anthropic uh, models. And so this is the Arc Browser, which, to be honest, like I'd never heard of before. So this is kind of interesting to, to read about. Um, they're launching a new AI-powered feature or a set of those features called Arc Max. Uh, and this is a combination of OpenAI's GPT 3.5 and then uh, Anthropic's models, uh, presumably Claude and, and potentially others as well. Um, the, uh, there are a bunch of kind of little capabilities, a bunch of individual little features that are kind of cool in here. It's essentially kind of part of that theme of integrating AI and chatbots more and more into our everyday experience with software, in this case, the browser. Uh, but you can think of it philosophically as an extension of the like Microsoft Copilot strategy where, you know, all Microsoft products just have this infused. And um, yeah, so one of the things you can do is... Uh, uh, you can have it rename downloaded files based on the content that they contain. I, I really like that because that's something that you know I find frustrating when I, especially I download papers from the archive. Andre, I'm sure you've seen this. You know, with the the really like obscure numbers yep. and stuff. Yeah, yep. <laughs> this is 
really big help. I, if I look at my downloads folder right now, it's just like all this crap, right? So it would be great to see that. Um, and then you know you can also do things like uh, grab a summary preview of a link when you hover over the link uh, and press shift. And then they've got a bunch of hotkey things. If you can hit command T, that kind of brings up this ArcMax uh, command bar and you have a whole bunch of capability over choosing which features to enable. So um, sort of interesting, uh, you know, there's uh, a lot here in terms of what AI can do when integrated in the web browser. And it's also an interesting new distribution channel for um, Anthropic and OpenAI. And one of the things I'd be really curious about is to figure out like what went into the decision of where to use GPT 3.5 and where to use the Anthropic models. Because that's a really interesting like dimension, you know, why mix and match these models and, and what implications do those choices have. So kind of cool story. It is pretty cool. And it's interesting to see these slightly different uh, uses of chatbots. We've seen it be sort of, you have a built-in chatbot in the sidebar or something like this, but this is really you know integrated into a base functionality of a browser. One I like quite a bit is also this ask on page feature. Apparently when you press command F to search for words in a page, which I do a lot, that I, I guess is often used by many people. If you cannot find the word, the word you're looking for, then this ArcAI can find an answer for your query in the page rather than just look for a word. So that's that's pretty nifty, and uh, it's it'll be interesting to see if these sorts of things will just generally be coming to browsers as extensions. The company did say they experimented with various features and, and are going to be collecting feedback and, and data going forward. So they may revise these kinds of things. Uh, yeah, it's a nifty kind of implementation of the assistance and we'll see what else we do. Yeah, it's, it's also especially interesting to see the kind of the fact that this isn't just a chatbot integration, more and more we're seeing product and AI kind of overlap and, and integrate more deeply. And I feel like that's a, it seems like a more realistic path to real value generation. Like you're actually, you're not just like launching a chatbot and having the chatbot do everything. You're doing things like thinking about, okay, what are people hovering over and what AI assisted uh, tooling can we add to the hover function? Things like that. I think that's kind of a, you know, the next level of product design, product management probably is going to look a lot more like that. It's like the, the you know very uh, handcrafted uh, use cases that are carefully studied rather than just like, you know, let's slap, you know, chat GPT or whatever in our app for some reason. Exactly. Yeah. I think it's it's similar to G Suite or all the Microsoft products where AI is just part of a product rather than the product, right? Right. On to the lightning round, we have our first story being Eleven Labs launches voice translation tool to break down language barriers for content. So Eleven Labs is kind of probably the leading startup for AI for voice applications. They have very impressive, pretty much cutting edge voice synthesis technology going from text to voice. And now they're featuring AI dubbing that can convert spoken content into another language while present, uh, while preserving the original speaker's voice. And we've seen this uh, with YouTube. I believe they launched this feature to redub your video in another language. 
And uh, we've seen this with some like musicians even where they retain the performance, I think, for K-pop. So I think this will be a kind of new norm where for content, we'll just have various versions for different, uh, you know, demographics. And I guess that's good, right? Right. And I think one of the metrics to keep an eye on too is, is this idea of the lag, you know, how much time it takes to generate these dubs. Just because um, you know you, you push that further and further, you're unlocking more and more use cases, and eventually you get to the point where you know you can do real time dubbing in a person's voice, and that gets really exciting from a, just a translation standpoint, right? The natural flow of dialogue conversation. Um, so you know, interesting to see how as the as the processors get better and better, as the models get more and more efficient, compute efficient, you know, maybe we can start to flirt with that too, um, and that would put Eleven Labs on a really interesting trajectory as well. So kind of cool to. Yeah, cool to see this pop up. Cool to see twenty languages covered. Um, you know, that's uh, that's no small feat given the availability of data in in some of those different languages. So, yeah, really, uh, really cool uh, next evolution for Eleven Labs. Yeah, some of these languages include Hindi, Portuguese, Spanish, Japanese, Ukrainian, Polish, and Arabic. So, you know, many of those are very widely used. So it is neat, and uh, once again, Eleven Labs putting out pretty impressive stuff. Next, we have Canva's new AI tools automate boring, labor-intensive design tasks. So if you haven't heard of Canva, they're, um, I think, an Australian... Are they Australian, New Zealand? They're Australian or something in that neck of the woods uh, company. And, and they do graphic design and they help people make social media graphics and, and presentations, that sort of thing. And um, they have a suite of now AI-powered design tools. And the idea is to make it really easy to transform designs into different formats. So you can think about converting a blog post into an email or a social media post without having to do any manual changes. And this is like absolutely in the butter zone, right, of, of language models today, essentially just translating you know, text or content between different media. It's a form of summarization in a way. It's a form of translation, depending on philosophically how you how you think of it. Um, but this new feature is going to be called Magic Switch, and, and that's what it allows you to do is switch between these different, like kind of toggle between you know social media, email, blog, those sorts of things. Um, they also have a magic media tool that includes now text-to-video capability. We've been talking about that for a while, right, on the show. Is you know We've seen text-to-image for a while kind of come into its, its own and really mature. The next evolution, just with compute becoming more abundant, that's really the only thing holding back text-to-video at this point is more compute efficiency and, yeah, more efficient algorithms, but the fundamental ideas are all there. Um, so I think the next, you know, the next year and a half to two years is going to be the story of sort of the mid-journey moment for uh, for text to video, and it seems like Canva's already kind of sniff was sniffing up that tree. What <laughs> I don't know what the hell I'm going to say, but they're you know they're on it. <laughs> yeah, they're moving towards it, and uh, that one is powered by Runway AI. So I think mm -hmm. as Runway improves it, and they are the leading kind of AI for video provider, so that actually makes quite a bit of sense in that collaboration. And yeah, I think there's quite a few interesting notes here. Uh, for instance, Canva has also announced that it will pay out 200 million over the next few years to designers who consent to having their content be used to train the company's AI models. And uh, so far, they haven't been trained on that data, and there is an opt-out option up front if you don't want that. Uh, and otherwise, they'll be opting in. 
by default, but very explicitly. So that's interesting. And in many ways, mirrors Adobe, right? In general, what they're doing, we're doing kind of uh, image expand. Apparently, Adobe also announced a similar compensation program for Adobe stock contributors. So I think it's, it's generally interesting in a way it feels like you know, this year has been crazy with AI moving so fast and just showing up everywhere. And as we've been covering, it feels like more and more there is kind of a playbook emerging of how to do things right. You want probably legal identification. You want to say, you know, we have safeguards in place and you can use our AI features without worrying about legal repercussions. You want to be very transparent about training on the data of users and uh, yeah, things like that. So pretty impressive progress by Canva. And uh, I guess this does seem like an alternative to Adobe if you need these kinds of AI features in your workflow. And speaking of Adobe, we have a small little feature that they're presenting. Adobe previews AI upscaling to make old fuzzy videos and GIFs look fresh. Uh, So this is an experimental AI-powered upscaling tool called Project ResUp. That's pretty cool. And it's using AI to upscale things. So take you know something like a low-resolution GIF or video and make it way higher res. Like uh, they have an example here of taking a clip from a 1947 movie and up it from 400 by 30, uh, 360 pixels to 1,280 by 960. So that's a huge up res. You've seen this be done you know, with AI before. It's kind of one of the very natural uses of AI. But again, showing how Adobe is very rapidly building and releasing these sorts of AI features. Yeah, the, the pace of release with Adobe has just been pretty remarkable. And, and also, you know, we talked about their leadership. You alluded to it earlier with this idea uh, legally of, of indemnifying people for using Firefly, their image generation service, and uh, saying, look, if, if there's a copyright violation that emerges from this that you're exposed to, we will indemnify you. We, we will help protect you in court. Um, so, you know, they've, they've really been aggressive here in, in pushing the envelope. Um, it's kind of an interesting capability in a weird way. Like, it makes me wonder what's going to happen to cameras. We're already obviously seeing this kind of tech embedded in the iPhone, you know, as, as it uh, does super resolution, as it's called, on, you know, r- regular everyday photographs. But it really, it makes me wonder what the impact really on the camera market is going to be. And, and also, like, you can imagine some kind of interesting snafus where, you know, some some embarrassing detail is is not caught on a lower resolution uh, film or whatever. And then when you upsample, you start to see stuff, you know, I don't know, private information, things like that, that people didn't re- realize was uh, was available. I, I'm kind of curious about whether we're going to see some some like little little amusing tidbits like that that we might not expect. But um, other than that, it seems, yeah, like a generally interesting story and a, and a capability that I think a lot of people are going to use. Yep. It's uh, still in this experiment phase, so there's not even a beta uh, option, but it probably will wind up in one of their video or image editing uh, tools. And it just reminds me actually to just mention, right, upscaling has been around. This is just a particularly impressive version of it. And if you haven't, you might enjoy going on YouTube and looking at 
some examples of this, of like people have done this uh, colorization and uh, resolution of videos from like 1910 or like super old videos of San Francisco from 1920. And it's, it's pretty crazy to be able to see these videos of like old tiny cities and settings and they look pretty, you know, pretty modern with all this stuff. And it, it really is cool to see. Yeah, it, actually, to your point too, for, for people who are wondering like roughly how it works, because, um, you know, Andre, uh, you mentioned that it's like this very natural application of machine learning. And, you know, part of that is just how the data works here, right? So you imagine taking a, taking a photo and, and, and artificially reducing the resolution of that photo, which is quite easy, you know, I mean, average together the colors of like the, you know, nine closest pixels or whatever. Um, and then, you know, you just basically teach the model to take the grainy input and use that to predict the uh, original photo. And you do that over and over again, the model eventually learns like what are the, you know, how do, how do you do that, that super resolution um, kind of function, which uh, anyway, uh, sort of interesting to see that get productized and productized in the form of videos and GIFs, which again, videos, we're, we're there now. And up next, we have Google Bard is gaining a new memory toggle to remember key details. Um, so essentially, this is, you know, we're used to interacting with these, these chatbots and giving them some information about us, which they hold in memory for a time. Um, but then once you close the, the window and you close your, your interaction with, you know, Bard or ChatGPT, obviously the model forgets everything you told it. It has no, uh, no context on you that it can reuse for next time. And this is an attempt to counteract that. So essentially you're going to be able to give Bard some facts about you. And the, the examples they give are, you know, I try to avoid eating meat. I have two kids. Um, please give shorter responses. I like shorter responses. And uh, Google will kind of store those in memory and then use them to sort of customize Bard a little bit more. And I think that's really what this is fundamentally is a customization play, trying to make Bard more personalized, more, more custom to the particular um, personalities and, and needs and life situations of all their users. And it doesn't hurt that they're collecting some really interesting data in the process, right? You think about the kind of data you're going to prioritize to store in memory here for Bard. I think it's going to be pretty interesting, monetizable data. So um, seems like a, a kind of good deal for for Google and, and maybe for uh, early users. Right? Yeah. ChatGPT launched sampling this, I think, a month or two ago, where you can basically say, for all my prompts, have this in the context. So now it's coming to Bard as well. And that seems useful if you have a very particular application, like, you know, I am a school teacher and I need help with this or that. And also speaking of Google, they had an announcement about Assistant with Bard. So they have had their Google Assistant for a while. That's their Siri ask thing. You can talk to it and ask it to do stuff. And they said that it will get an upgrade where it will have Bard integrated. So then you can interact with this assistant through talk, uh, text, voice, images, etc. And as you might imagine, the assistant will be much more capable at interpreting your queries, answering queries, etc., etc. Very natural kind of logical thing to do, I guess, with an assistant, but we haven't seen it be done with Siri or something like that yet. So this will be pretty cool if you like the sort of uh, assistant feature. Yeah, one of the one of the things I read in the blog post that kind of gave me like existential thoughts was they, they were saying, um, uh, it, like basically imagine that you take a photo of a cute puppy and you want to post it to social media. Just like, just go to, you know, the assistant with Bard 
over with the Bard overlay and ask it to write a social media post about that dog picture for you. And Bard is going to just like use the image as a cue, understand the context and like produce this post and they show an example and it's like, oh my God, such a cute dog, like emoji, emoji, all, all this stuff. And I'm just thinking like, oh my God, like is, it, is this a social media is going to become like, you're just seeing a bunch of like, like AI generated crap. We're not even bothering to like write what we think about the photo. We're just like letting Bard express. Anyway, that, that was a uh, sort of, I, I don't know if it, if it made the point that they wanted to make, but that's how it landed with me at least. Um, they are rolling it out with early testers soon. So, uh, you know, they're, they're certainly not done here. They're getting early feedback before they bring it to the public, and, and that'll be over the next few months. Last one for Google. I guess we covered a few features that they're saying. There's a neat little thing that will come with Android 14, which is AI-generated wallpapers. And, you know, that's pretty much what you can imagine for your wallpaper for your phone. You can now use text-to-image right in Android to generate whatever you want. Uh, it will be coming first on Pixel 8 and Pixel 8 Pro, but it should be on... I guess all Android devices upgraded to Android 14 pretty soon. Very cool. And moving on to applications and business, with our first story being Waymo's RoboTaxi service is now available to tens of thousands of people in San Francisco. Waymo is expanding the service, which has been running for quite a while in a sort of closed waitlist capacity. And now it's covering more of a city, 47 square miles, and allowing, again, tens of thousands of people to access the service. And this is essentially like an Uber, but with robotaxis. So you hail a car to pick you up and take you somewhere, and there's no driver in the car. And in fact, I happened to have used it this last no. Sunday. Yeah, when I was in this a South. you never become part of the story. Well, too late. Uh, but I can tell you, yeah, it's it's pretty nice. I liked it a lot. It's pretty much what you would expect. And from everything I've read and seen, it seems like, aside from perhaps being a little bit overly cautious, uh, sometimes it's a smooth ride. It hasn't gotten to any crashes. And I guess this will be finally a source of revenue for Waymo after like a decade or something of working on this. Yeah, and, and they were saying $1.1 billion spent over the course of that decade, too. So this is you know, not chump change. I'm curious, though, from your experience, you mentioned it's a little bit cautious. What are some of the ways the, the, the cautiousness manifests? Like, is it when they're pedestrians or is it you know changing lanes, things like that? Yeah, there's cases of, for instance, uh, some of these like more intuitive things of maybe a pedestrian starts to cross, but then stops a quarter way in to let the car um, pass, right? And the car will do the legal thing, which is to wait for the pedestrian to cross, even if legally, uh, or even if like logically you would typically go ahead and pass, uh, things like that. Although at the same time, I will say it's less cautious than you might expect. Uh, so mm. it's good at taking initiative in a way that you would want. It's not like, oh, if there's a car coming very far away, I'm going to wait forever and then go. It, it knows when to go a bit faster to overtake and do things like that. So uh, yeah, it's actually a pretty good ride. And if you live in San Francisco, you can, I guess, go ahead and give it a try. And uh, soon that will also be a case for LA and, and other places. 
Right, right. Sorry, I'm, I'm, I'm so curious about your experience on this. I just one more question there. Did you find that um, pedestrians or other drivers seemed more on edge once they realized? It, did they realize it was a self-driving car? Like, is it outwardly obvious? I don't think they were on edge, but it's interesting actually. A lot of pedestrians kind of found it fun too, or like <laughs> they found it interesting. There were people like taking photos and videos of these Waymo cars. Oh, wow! Uh, it's at one point uh, we were uh, driving on like a empty street, and these two pedestrians stopped in the middle of the road to just mess with the car and I had to like shoot them away so I oh could keep God. going. So I think it's still definitely a novelty for people and interesting. And uh, yeah, I don't, I didn't see anyone be nervous, but uh, I would imagine some drivers might be. Well, cause they do look weird as hell, right? I mean, I, like every time I go to San Francisco, I, I'm still not over it. You see the, like, cause they have the, the twirling LIDAR stuff. They've got, they got the big rig on top. Anyway, it's, it's a, it's a bit of a monstrosity, but Hey, it works. And there's no driver up front. Yeah, if as a driver you see that and you're like, whoa, what? Yeah. Uh, but yeah, it, it, it's uh, pretty well designed. So there's like an assist me button right up front. So if you do get stuck or it does something weird, you can, I guess, call Google. And I would imagine someone takes over that's a human and, and makes it do the right thing. Up next, we have GitHub Copilot loses an average of $20 per month per user or per user per month. Same thing. Um, yeah, so we have GitHub Copilot, which is charging users $10 a month. They're losing, on average, $20 per month, it turns out, according to this report. And um, so that means essentially, I mean, it costs like $30 per user per month to run. That's also oddly close to what Microsoft charges folks for access to Microsoft 365 Copilot, which is 30 bucks per user per month. Um, so that really all indicates the insane expense of you know not just training the powerful models that are used to run these services, but just running them, doing inference. Uh, like most most of the cost now is in inference for these systems. Uh, and, you know, Andre, you know, you just mentioned like tens of millions to hundreds of millions to train these systems. Well, the cost to do inference, right? We're now in multiples of that. So pretty uh, pretty wild and a big you know big business risk. We're starting to see Microsoft pour money into this. You know, and obviously GitHub and OpenAI, Google doing the same, effectively subsidizing our searches, and sort of like Uber back in the day, right? They were subsidizing rides; it, they were not profitable the vast majority of their lifetime. The question looms: Can you turn this around? Can you actually make a profit on this? Um, and what's the relative value of capturing market share, which is what they're doing? They're prioritizing capturing market share by essentially discounting the price artificially um, versus actually turning a profit. And the fact that that's not even being attempted, the fact that these companies are okay taking such a huge, huge loss, um, and, and these are really massive scale losses, uh, suggests that they think there's a lot more leverage in the future uh, in just like you know taking the L, like, like bleeding the money for now and just growing that market share, getting people used to using their product. Exactly. Yeah, this is quite interesting. I think for one, because this is GitHub Copilot, which we don't have concrete numbers, I don't think, but I would imagine has at least hundreds of thousands, if not millions. Actually, they do say more than 1.5 million people have used it. And that's a lot of users to be losing $20 a month yeah. for, right? And I think it is 
particularly hard in the coding context because usually, right, the cost is per token. So it's every time you generate a character or a couple of characters, it's maybe like 0.0004 cents or something. But in coding, what happens is if you have this enabled, anytime you like stop typing and you press enter, it will give you a suggestion, a suggested autocomplete. And you can use it or you cannot use it. But right when you continually like make suggestions every time, those add up quickly. You generate a lot of text. Uh, and I know a lot of boilerplate code, which is like, you know, write me a get function. Well, that's, you know, I don't know, 50, 100 characters that you have to pay for. So yeah, it's it's very interesting to see this report and it'll be interesting to see if and how Copilot can actually handle this. Uh, we've seen for image generation, it's very typical to have a limited number of generations per plan, and then you can buy tokens. For instance, DALI does this, where you have to buy kind of image credits to spend. And I would not be surprised if that's something that this kind of tool will move to. And moving on to our lightning round now, we have, hey, AI hardware time. TSMC sales fell less than feared as AI demand offset, offsets slump. So TSMC, um, you know, we've talked about them quite a lot on the show. They are basically the world's uh, most advanced, most capable manufacturers. It's, it's a, a semiconductor fab factory. So they, they make semiconductor chips. And these are the chips that, um, among other things, go into leading edge uh, AI GPUs like the NVIDIA H100 that's gotten so much attention. Um, but they also make stuff, you know, their, their three nanometer node goes to the iPhone. Uh, they've got, you know, kind of really, and that's the absolute bleeding edge, right? Three nanometers is the smallest node size that human beings know how to make on planet Earth. Then there's the five, which is used for the H100. And there's the seven nanometer node size, which is the A100, the predecessor to the H100. And then there's a bunch of like bigger kind of sloppier node sizes, the 14 nanometer, for example, that, that get used in more mature systems. And one of the big questions has been, um, look, we're, like we're seeing a slump apparently in revenues for TSMC across a lot of their different, you know, a lot of their different uh, chip um, markets. So lo looking at uh, smartphones and laptop chip sales in particular, and you know, maybe this has to do with rising interest rates internationally and, and, and decreased consumer demand. I don't know, but that may be part of it. Um, the hope, though, has been, well, maybe this whole AI hype thing is going to drive demand for AI chips, and that'll offset some of the losses here. And that's exactly what seems to be happening. The preliminary sales numbers are just kind of come in, and it seems like indeed uh, data centers are driving this, uh, AI data centers, that is, are driving this uh, increased demand for these chips, in particular NVIDIA, uh, NVIDIA chips and the memory associated with those chips. Um, yeah, and right now people, kind of all eyes are on this stock because uh, they've got a uh, a uh, new report coming in on their earnings for July to September on October 19th. So as we speak about a week away. And so uh, it'll be interesting to see what happens. You know, does this actually come to pass? Is the AI hype bubble, is it a hype bubble or is it just like an actually profitable source of uh, revenues among other things for the hardware sector, for the, the chip fabs like TSMC? And on to more hardware stories. Uh, for instance, Microsoft could debut its AI chip next month. So this is you know speculative-ish, but seems pretty safe to say that Microsoft is reportedly planning to unveil its first AI chip at its annual developers 
conference, which will reduce its reliance on NVIDIA-designed chips. And we've seen this happen with other companies. Uh, Google had their TPUs. I think Meta had custom server racks, which I don't think were custom chips, but other were still custom hardware. Tesla has custom uh, chips for their uh, AI for self-driving. So yeah, and now that we have this kind of demand bottleneck, the ability to get chips is hard. It seems like uh, Microsoft is very much intending to debut their own type of chip. Yeah, and this is really a recurring theme that we're going to see today and I think over the course of the next few months as companies like Microsoft really, really try to artificially pump up competition to NVIDIA. There are deep strategic reasons, and, and one day we'll do a, an AI hardware episode, I'm sure, but there are deep strategic reasons why uh, that's like NVIDIA's uncontested dominance in AI chips is just really, really bad for the likes of Microsoft, for the likes of Google OpenAI, not just because they have uh, you know, limited supply of chips, you know, it's always good to have more, uh, more players, but um, but also because you know you can't negotiate in the same way when you've got this absolute chokehold on the space. And um, one of the strategies that Microsoft's been exploring, yes, is designing its own chips. Uh, it's also been exploring partnerships with companies like ARM to try to uh, work the software side of things, kind of build out an ecosystem of software to compete with CUDA, which is what NVIDIA essentially has their moat built on. Um, you know, it's, it's so easy to use these GPUs because NVIDIA has been refining the CUDA ecosystem for so long. Uh, this is all going to be part of, I think, again, the, the story of the next few months and a really, really critical unsung a part of the kind of whole AI global competition angle. And adding to that, uh, it's very much the case because ChatGPT owner OpenAI is also exploring making its own AI chips. So this is reporting on internal discussions in the company. And yeah, it's pretty much the same as Microsoft. They are dealing with this crunch for hardware, especially as they commercialize and are offering you know, their API to enterprise customers. So it's, yeah, kind of the same story. They are thinking about developing their own chips or acquiring a chip company. Yeah, and, and really surprising to see OpenAI doing this, just given how hard it is to make these chips, right? I mean, it's like, roughly speaking, it's like half a billion dollars to even get into the the kind of the initial lift of designing your own chips. So for OpenAI to be considering this is it's quite fascinating. I think it re reflects them the, the fact that they've kind of started to mature into this wildly large valuation, seventy to ninety billion dollars. We're starting to see them make seventy to ninety billion dollar moves, and one of them is, yeah, thinking about designing their own chips. Again, these are internal conversations, so it's all kind of rumor mill stuff. But one of the things that is being claimed here is that OpenAI has considered this option to the point where it's actually performed due diligence on a potential acquisition target. So this isn't just a, you know some idle kind of banter over over beers or whatever. This is a a strategy that they're exploring quite intently. Um, I think I think it's fair to say if OpenAI does this, I mean, they're going to be the the smallest. Uh, by headcount, model developer company that's designing its own chips, and that'll be really interesting. You know, again, really tough area to break into. Um, even Meta's had you know custom chip effort that's just absolutely flopped at least so far. There've been a lot of a lot of problems there. Um, they they may well succeed. They likely will eventually. But uh, you know, this is no no small task. And OpenAI taking it on is uh, or potentially taking it on is a really interesting data point in terms of where they think the the strategic leverage is going to come from in this ecosystem. 
And on to the last story for this section, more on the applications front, Google announces new generative AI search capabilities for doctors. So this is Google Cloud, and these are AI-powered search capabilities broadly for the healthcare industry that allows doctors to access and search for clinical information from various types of medical records in one place. Uh, and this is something I think that I've been working on for a while, generally applications of healthcare with Google Cloud. And this one is aimed to save time for healthcare workers who often spend a ton of time working with these medical records and trying, you know, using various tools, etc. So yeah, it's, it's hopefully going to make it easier uh, for uh, healthcare workers to not face burnout. And on to our next section, projects and open source, starting with Replit's new AI model now available on Hugging Face. So Replit AI, which is focused on code completion and code assistance, is now free for all users. They've released their Replit code V1.5 freeB, free billion model on Hugging Face, where you generally release your you know AI models for download to anyone. So this is now an open source language model. Um, yeah, and I think this points to something interesting we have been observing more and more, which is industry being the driver of open source. Uh, you know, it's it is expensive to train these models. It is presumably advantageous to have the better models compared to competition. And yet again and again, we've seen big players release their models for anyone to use with uh, permissible licensing. Uh, so yeah, this is another example of that. Yeah, I'm, I'm really curious if, if this will persist, you know, if we'll, if we'll keep seeing, because at, at, at a certain point, you start to wonder, okay, what is the marginal value being added to the open source ecosystem you know, when we have like yet another <laughs> model that isn't, you know, if it's not like um, uh, you know, the next like Falcon or the next Llama that really pushes the envelope, uh, you sort of start to wonder, okay, like, is, is this worth effectively just the headline? Because at a certain point, that's what you get. Obviously, there are marginal benefits to going with one model or another. But the reality is, you know, as somebody who, who develops with these systems, like I kind of just get confused about where I should even go. Like it's just so time consuming to figure out which model to use that you end up going back to your kind of your your stable of of preferred models and things like that. You might go to a leaderboard, but then you're you know, you're usually looking for for the extremes, a model with really low latency that can give outputs really quickly, or you're looking for a model, you know, like GPT-4 that's really, really good, or like Llama 2. Um, but uh, yeah, so ultimately, I, I, I kind of feel like there's there's going to be an interesting question, and, and we'll see this resolved maybe in, over the course of the next year or so, as to what the value really is for these companies putting out these open source models, again, beyond the headline, because they are getting attention from this. You know, that, that is something that allows them to be seen as like a, a player in the open source community. Um, and maybe that's enough. But as the cost of these models kind of tracks upward, as more and more is expected uh, to be relevant and to earn those headlines, I think, uh, I don't know, it'll be an interesting question to, to see answered. Right. And it's actually important to note that this was done alongside a general product announcement, which was Replit AI for 
all. So it sounds like they've been working on developing the infrastructure, the compute infrastructure to be able to offer their AI features to everyone. And now they say that code completion and code assistance are now enabled by default and available to 23 million developers. And developers on the free plan will have access to the basic AI features, while pro users will have the exclusive license to the most powerful AI models. So I guess the moat, as we've discussed before, might be on the infrastructure front, more so than the actual models. And we'll see. It's I mean, we just talked about Copilot losing a lot of money. <laughs> Maybe Replit will figure it out. I don't know. And up next, we have, it feels like deja vu, introducing Stable LM, a 3 billion parameter model building sustainable, high-performance language models to smart devices. Now, this, um, I do, you know, yet another, yes, language model, again, yes, at 3 billion parameters. Um, one of the trends that we absolutely are seeing is companies starting to focus in, especially in the open source, on smaller models. Smaller models yes, are great because they are cheaper to train, right? So you have a, essentially you have, you have fewer parameters that have to be tweaked during the training process, which means there's less actual optimization power, less, less processing that needs to go into the training. Um, and, and that's, you know, a huge money saver. And in many cases, it's the only thing that allows these companies to compete really in this environment. They, they can't build a trillion parameter model to compete with, you know, GPT-4. Uh, so this is how you make that dent. Um, Interesting also, though, not just from a money-saving standpoint, you know, why are we seeing a lot of $3 billion? Well, this is something that makes it a lot easier to put on edge devices that have limited memory. So you can put those $3 billion parameters on a much wider range of devices. You can think of laptops, but also phones, things like that. Um, so it opens up a much wider range of use cases. In this particular instance, so Stable LM, this comes from Stability AI, which you know is behind Stable Diffusion and, and that whole series of models. Uh, this particular model is being open sourced. It is just a pre-trained model. It's just a base model. In other words, it's a glorified text autocomplete system. It has not yet been instruction fine-tuned. So in other words, this is like a model where if you want to get something useful from it, you'd have to prompt it by saying something like, you know, below is a piece of code that checks the weather, colon. And then the very next thing, and it's just doing autocompletes. It's predicting what's the most likely next words that'll come. So you kind of have to do more prompt engineering to get value out of these systems. And that is why instruction fine tuning is yet to follow. They are currently, as they say, um, doing their uh, instruction fine tuning model safety testing to make sure that it's ready for release. Um, unclear what that involves, but that's uh, on the horizon. So we can expect to hear more uh, in this direction fairly soon from stability. Right. And I think Interestingly, it relates to a story we covered last week, which was BTM 3B8K, <laughs> another 3 billion parameter model released by another company. Uh, in this case, it was Cerebrus. So as you said, I think it might be more and more of a trend of trying to develop very performant smaller models so that you know you don't have to spend crazy amounts of money to have uh, AI-powered features. And on to our last story in this section, not about an open source model, but about open source. The story is protesters decry Meta's irreversible proliferation of AI. So these protesters are essentially saying that the open sourcing of large language models that open AI, that Meta has been in particularly doing a lot of. So they've released Llama and then Llama 2. 
Lama 2, 70 billion, you know, very large, very powerful models, kind of on par with ChatGPT. And so, as we discussed before, there's been a lot of conversations about this with regards to AI safety of like, if you release the models and people can easily misuse them and that can result in a lot of problems. And this is what this article is about, in particular about actual protesters. There was a governing outside Meta's office with people, you know, doing a protest, having signs. There were signs of like, avoid an AI arms race, don't open source doomsday, safety over profit, don't... uh, I don't know, don't may the genie before the lamp, no to reckless AI releases, all this sort of thing. Apparently, there's even a website, metaprotest.org. So it's very interesting to see people being this passionate about this particular viewpoint uh, and uh, very Silicon Valley sort of thing. But uh, yeah, it's, it's very much still not a resolved topic. Yeah, I, I think, uh, to be honest, uh, like this... Uh, does make a lot of sense to me, uh, the, the protest that is, uh, in that we have, you know, we're getting to the point where GPT-4 had to be tested for its ability to self-replicate. And, um, you know, we have uh, we have third-party auditors that are explicitly testing for those capabilities now. It's, GPT-4 seems to be able to help people as they do sort of early bioweapon design. It certainly can help people to design um, and uh, synthesize chemical compounds from uh, controlled chemical compounds from household materials. And so you, know, you just start to think about, apart from the, all the malware, like potentially catastrophic malware attacks that uh, certainly folks at, at Anthropic uh, and OpenAI and DeepMind have all warned about and they see coming, you know, even in the next like handful of years. And so if that's the world we live in and if open source trails those capabilities on average by whatever it is, uh, you know, six, 12, 18 months, depending on the capability, uh, you know, we have to imagine that, yeah, fairly soon we will have models just published freely to the open source that have dangerous capabilities. Uh, you know, you look at, at Meta, they, they put out famously their Llama 2 and said, don't worry, everybody, it's fine. Uh, our model has been, has had safety measures trained into it. Well, what happens at one of the Senate hearings on the Hill fairly recently, Tristan Harris, famous for making the uh, the Social Network documentary, if I recall, um, he basically shows, hey, uh, listen, Zuck, uh, I just took your model with all its safety fine tuning, and I just trained that out of the system, which I can do because it's open source. And now, yeah, it'll absolutely help me to design chemical uh, compounds and things like all, all these dangerous things that it wasn't supposed to do. So the fact that the capabilities aren't there yet to do catastrophic harms, um, I don't find particularly comforting given that we are, by all accounts, on a trajectory there. Like, I don't see how that this changes if we just keep on the default course. And basically, everyone at all the frontier labs sees WMD level risk coming from these systems in like not all that long in a context where, again, the open source follows the frontier work fairly closely. So, I think this fundamental question of like, is it responsible for companies to be open sourcing systems in a context where we lack the means to control them, where we lack the means to bake into them responses to stimuli that guarantee they can't be jailbroken or have 
you know, safety measures trained out of them. Um, I think it's a pretty reasonable thing. I, I, you know, I don't know if the solution is a, an actual protest like this. Um, there are other forms of advocacy, but hey, you know what? If, if the shoe fits, I guess uh, go for it. But uh, it's, it certainly is an interesting, an interesting topic. And, you know, it's one I feel fairly strongly about just having done a ton of work in this space. But there are interesting and thoughtful critiques of this, obviously, uh, that come from all sides. So a really important issue. I think we're going to see legislation come down on this issue in the next probably the next 12 months would be my guess at this point. Right. And uh, I mean, they were covered in IEEE Spectrum and we did talk about them. So I guess the protest at least had <laughs> some effect. True. And if you go to metaprotest.org, they have a very kind of well laid out, I guess, thoughtful or at least uh, clear discussion of this topic that a lot of what you said and their concrete sort of demand or I guess request or whatever is that not, you know, stop Lama 2 being open source because that's already the case. The um, perspective they are advocating is that going forward, Meta and other companies will adopt best practices for providing safe access to AI models like structured access. So it's, yeah, as you said, a, a pretty reasonable and widely shared position. And I do wonder if we'll see even more of this sort of advocacy as we go forward. And on to the research and advancement section, starting off with robotics, scaling up learning across many different robot types from DeepMind and many others. So this is kind of a big deal for roboticists and generally robotics, which is that together with 33 academic labs, uh, DeepMind had pulled data from 22 different robotypes to create this OpenX-embodiment data set. So with all of these different robots, with 20 more than 20 institutions, they collected a ton of demonstrations of different skills. They have 500 skills. Uh, 150,000 tasks across more than 1 million episodes. So that's across like completing a task, right? Ton of data, much, much, much bigger than any sort of data set that has existed in robotics, which has been part of the reason that robotics hasn't advanced as fast. It's just very hard to get data. You know, each robot is different. Each, rap, uh, each lab has their own different setup, you know, with very different uh, visuals and and what the robot sees, the cameras, all of that. So this is by far the largest effort to collect data across all sorts of robots, all sorts of setups. And as you might imagine or hope, this has resulted in pretty big jumps in performance in some of the existing types of models. So DeepMind has already in the past developed RT1, a transformer that can uh, select sort of high-level commands for any sort of task given an actual language query. You can think of it almost like a language model for robotics. They've also had RT2, which is similar but goes even lower level. It actually controls the robot, basically tells it, like, move in this direction, open your gripper, close your gripper, really going down to the lowest level of given an actual language query, what should the robot do? And it can do anything. And throughout these models, they now have RT1X, RT2X, 
trained on all this data and they showed, as you might hope, that with all this data, they are just much more performant and much more generalizable. So there's a lot of data here. Uh, a lot. It's you know a big, big effort. But the short version is there are on all sorts of tasks, sort of jumps in 150% the performance. Like if you look at a bar chart, each one of them is a pretty big jump, twice as better or close to that. And also... Really cool is that RT2X outperforms RT2 by 3X in emergent skill evaluation. So if you look at the graph, it's going from 25% success rate on emergent skills that are not in the training data to closer to 80%. So this really moves us towards this dream of general purpose robotics, which has been you know kind of the frontier that is very hard to get to. Yeah, it's it's a big deal, and as someone who's worked on robotics, clearly, I'm I'm pretty excited to talk about it. Yeah, I, no, I, and I bet right, and and the main, at least to me, the main story absolutely is that you know three x uh, increase in emergent skill capability with RT two x versus RT two. The so so one of the central kind of reasons that we find ourselves in the Chat GPT era, right, is that language models um, are able to learn from essentially like. A huge number, not just of different documents, but if you think of every document as a kind of task, they're able to learn from like millions and millions of different kinds of tasks, right? They're reading legal documents and medical documents and and specific kinds of medical documents about one part of the body, and and they're reading about business and, and this and that. And each one of those things is like a separate independent task. And one of the things we seem to be learning about scaling is that that task generality, that's what allows systems to, well, generalize. If you train on a very, um, a very diverse data set, you end up learning not just how to do the things that you were trained for, but to kind of interpolate between them, right? To, to find new, new document types that you may never have encountered before and reason about them because in some sense, training hasn't just taught you to be good at the specific things that you've been trained for, but more generally to understand maybe the world, to build a world model or something like that. Um, so one of the key challenges in robotics is that, yeah, you make an arm that manipulates a Rubik's cube. Well, you've made an arm that manipulates a Rubik's cube. It has one incredibly specialized function. And so what I think they're doing here really is moving robotics a little bit more in the direction of that kind of uh, language uh, modeling type of universe where we have a wider range of different tasks. And I don't think it's a coincidence that this is where we start to see this kind of emergent capability showing up, just like we've seen it with language models. Now we're seeing it with robotics. And you know, you, you might, if you're a, a, a big kind of scaling person like I am, you might expect this to just continue, right? You might expect to see as we increase the diversity of tasks more and more, uh, this is the, the um, kind of universality of these systems, the emergent skill capabilities uh, is, is just going to increase. These things are going to be able to do things that they were never explicitly trained for because those things have maybe elements in common with a, a bunch of different things that have roughly been seen before by the system or because the system just learns to generalize out of distribution. So I, I totally agree. I think this is a, a really big uh, breakthrough. And yeah, the, the big thing that caught my eye for sure was that emergent skill evaluation, that 3x jump in capability. Right. And even more to highlight that point, another interesting figure in the paper is actually across different labs, right? There's been various papers on various tasks like kitchen manipulation and cable routing. And it is worth noting that these tasks are still sort of tabletop 
tasks dealing with a few objects with kind of a static arm. So these are not moving around the house and making a sandwich for you or whatever. But uh, yeah, there's this concrete result of if you look at existing prior data sets and you have an existing prior approach, like you know a more tailored approach from prior work, and you compare this general purpose model to this prior effort and data set, you know, out of a box, RT1X does better than all of them by quite a bit. So it's, yeah, that's another example of why that is uh, generalizable and, and very cool. And the data and the models are released. And as you've seen, if you release a language model or ChatGPT or whatever, now a lot of research can build on top of that in various ways. And I, I would imagine that's going to happen with robotics. So yeah, really, really exciting news for robotics research. Up next, we have decomposing language models into understandable components. This is um, really interesting if you're into interpretability and if you're into the kind of interpretability work that Anthropic does. This is a paper from Anthropic. It's part of their um, their kind of series of, of papers and projects on what they call mechanistic interpretability. How do we understand the, the goings-on within a neural network? How do we understand um, in human understandable ways what the network is doing, what it's thinking in some sense? And this paper emerges from a, a very clear and significant problem in interpretability. And that problem is that you can't pin down meaning to an individual neuron. So in other words, if uh, you know, you're, you're never going to have like a single neuron that just fires when um, you know, a sentence has been fed into a language model that involves cars. There's no car neuron, you know, there's, no, there's no airplane neuron, or there may be, but there, there quite often are neurons that, you know, or concepts that aren't represented with single neurons. So this is a huge problem if you're trying to understand the kind of thinking of a neural network for safety purposes, right? Trying to understand, is it making certain kinds of, uh, of plans? Is it, is it developing certain strategies or, or about to behave in a certain way? And this problem is known as polysemanticity. Basically, polysemanticity is the idea that a single neuron can fire for many different concepts. Um, in fact, clusters of neurons uh, can fire for many different concepts in different ways. And, um, and, and that's a real, it's a real issue for interpretability. And, and so, by the way, uh, when we say 3 billion or 7 billion or all these numbers, that's a number of units or neurons in the neural net, right? So it's, it's like a big MOF function and each little unit does its own thing, has some inputs and outputs and somehow learns to process data. So there's a lot of units and none of them do one thing. And that's sort of just by the nature of how our brains work and also neural nets work when you train them. Exactly. Yeah. And, and just, yeah, to be explicit about that, right? Usually when we give the, the parameter count of a model, we're not giving uh, the number of neurons per se, but we're giving like the number of, say, neuron connections, right? The connections between the different neurons. If you count them all up, that's the number of parameters, the number of things that you, you train during the training process to, to kind of refine. Um, uh, yeah, exactly. And so, and so essentially there's this problem that, hey, these, these systems, they seem to behave kind of like human neurons, right? There's no, no one neuron for, I guess, or I'm assuming, sorry, I'm talking out of my ass here. It's not like I'm a neuroscientist, but uh, I'm guessing there's no car neuron in our brains either. And so what they're going to do is, uh, is ask the question, okay, well, what if we zoom out just a little bit? We're no longer going to just look at the single neuron level because that's hopeless. We've kind of established that. What if we 
find a technique that allows us to identify groups of neurons. If we do that, are we going to be able to resolve clusters of neurons that together seem to represent a well-defined human understandable concept? And it turns out the answer is yes. And the technique that they're going to, to use to uh, obtain these representations, to identify these clusters of neurons, is called a sparse autoencoder. Uh, the details don't matter too much, but essentially what they're trying to do is train a model to just like take in the, um, the behavior, let's say, of the neurons at one layer of the network and just um, compress it, and then reconstruct it from that compressed representation. And the hope is that that compressed representation can have properties that make it easier for us to kind of interpret the system. Um, going into more detail than that, I don't think is going to be helpful in, in this format, but that's just a rough idea of what they're doing. And it's, it's remarkably effective. So they have a, a bunch of plots that show, you know, they get human uh, annotators to go through and judge how interpretable different of these neuron clusters are. And they find just, I mean, a, a huge, huge difference. Um, I mean, it's night and day. I mean, you really just have to look at these. The distribution is like shifted way over to the right, very clearly, huge, huge effect on interpretability. And um, and that's a, a really big breakthrough, not one that I would have expected, to be honest, at this stage. Uh, and it also offers a way to steer the behavior of models, right? Because if you can figure out what the neurons are that fire for a given concept, hey, maybe you can make them artificially fire. And if you can make them artificially fire, maybe you can cause the model to display certain behaviors in predictable ways. And that's so that starts to shade into alignment. It starts to shade into, you know, catastrophic risk mitigation and all those things. And so really, really interesting, uh, very consistent with the anthropic mechanistic interpretability agenda. And I think a, a really exciting a next step in their journey. Yes. And again, this is really cool, right? So uh, to give some concrete examples, they can find sort of a cluster of neurons. And, and as you said, just to self-correct, the number of parameters isn't the number of neurons, but it's correlated. Uh, so they find uh, collections of neurons that, for instance, focus on legal language or DNA sequencing or numbers separated by commas or sports and, and things like that, right? And to give a concrete example, which is very cool, they show that if you feed in one, two, three, four, five, six, seven, eight, whatever, a normal language model will just continue with some more numbers. But if you kind of hard code some neurons to be active, to output you know, big numbers, you can steer it to produce other output. So if you have some uh, neurons for Chinese, if you activate those, it will take the numbers and convert them to Chinese. If you have uh, neurons for hexademo, hexadecimal uh, numbers, it will produce hexadecimal things. If you have a DNA thing, it will output DNA. So you can basically force it to produce different types of output. And this is very interesting in terms of what sorts of things you can do. Immediately, I have to ask, like, if there is a swearing set of units, right, <laughs> of inappropriate units, can you just disable those? If they're like sex yeah. uh, or like, yeah, inappropriate concept units, can you just make it not talk about inappropriate things? Potentially, this is huge if, in fact, it's that powerful. So... Very cool results as usual. 
it the actual paper is super long. It's uh, you can look into it and on Fropix, so we can't cover a lot of the details. But it's it's really cool, and you can actually look more into a lot of examples in uh, these interactive sort of tools they have embedded. So if you do feel like exploring more, kind of what kinds of groups of units there are, you can click on the link in the description and go take a look. And on to the lightning round. First, we have Prompt Breeder, self-referential self-improvement via prompt evolution. We've covered a few kind of similar types of uh, works about this, where essentially instead of manually improving and crafting a prompt to get the output you want, you have some sort of algorithm that can do it. And so this is an example of that that uses evolutionary uh, training or optimization where you start with a collection of prompts and then you basically mix and match and mutate them until you find something that works better. Uh, that's pretty much the summary. And it does, I guess, again, feed into a pretty substantial amount of work that has shown that we can actually make the inputs to language models more optimized without human involvement, which could be a big part of how they're used in practice in the future. Yeah, and, and this is you know when when people talk about um, <laughs> talk about the singularity, right, and and talk about AI systems improving themselves and how you know well that should lead to AI systems being even better at improving themselves, which should lead AI systems to be even better at improving themselves, and so on and so forth. Um, research like this is really kind of as close to that kind of research as we can do right now. You know, the, the main problem with, you, you might think, oh, well, why don't I get an AI to like look at its own neurons and try to optimize those directly? Well, there are just so many neurons that there's, there's just not the computational capacity, essentially. There's not, not the, the learning capacity to have that system learn how to kind of iterate on itself in this way. And it's also just like, when you start to think about how you would execute on that, it gets very, I don't know, technically complex. This is, uh, I think, pretty remarkable in terms of the originality of the particular mechanism they're using here. So they construct these prompts um, using essentially like a, one prompt or one type of prompt that's meant to generate uh, new prompts. So the whole purpose of this prompt is just to like generate candidate prompts that then can be tested to see if they actually deliver better behavior than previously tested prompts. And those generator prompts um, themselves get mutated and, and tested on. So they have little kind of mutation um, functions that get introduced. And so this is where the self-referential self-improvement thing comes in. Not only is it running this experiment, this genetic experiment, if you will, trying to like iterate through different prompts and see what the best one is, it's also iterating on the mechanism that is generating those prompts. So it's, it's sort of reflexive in that sense, or, or, or not, not quite recursive, but um, very kind of self-referencing. <laughs> self um, so really quite interesting. I think it's also, uh, you know, there, there's been some research that suggests that maybe prompting is mathematically quite analogous to fine tuning. And, and if that's true, then this process may actually be more like a system modifying its own weights, a system modifying its own parameters than, um, than, than might 
immediately appear to be the case. So if that's the case, I mean, anyway, this is a really interesting piece of work. Very simple idea, very elegant. Um, would expect nothing less from uh, Tim Hochtaschel, who who led the the project. Uh, he's been really interested in you know this kind of work, and, and he's done some interesting RL stuff too in the past. So uh, very very uh, impressive result, and and pretty pretty jarring if you're looking at uh, the prospect of uh, or the risks that might come with uh, self improving AI systems. Right. Uh, interestingly, there was also a paper just one month ago, pretty much uh, you know concurrent work called Large Language Models as Optimizers. So similar idea there, not quite the same, but uh, related. Uh, one caveat to all these things, uh, which is true also with, for example, reinforcement learning, which is another mechanism by which you can self-improve, is that it relies on having an external kind of metric of you can evaluate yourself. And often, if yeah. you don't know how to do a task, you may not have anyone tell you, oh, you did good or bad, or et cetera. So the example tasks here are relatively simple, like classifying whether something is good or bad. But I don't know. Yeah, it's it's definitely in an emerging line of work of understanding prompts much more. And you know, some people are saying, you know, is academia relevant anymore? Given <laughs> you need compute for everything, and then you look at stuff like this, where yeah, clearly yeah. pure research still is very important. That's a really good point. And next, we have China's first 28 nanometer lithography tool to be delivered this year. Try saying 28 nanometer lithography tool three times fast. Anyway, um, so this is a, a really interesting story. I mean, I'm trying to kind of bring in some context here on the hardware piece because we've gotten some feedback about that, um, that, that people uh, are, are interested in that dimension. Uh, you know, let us know if that's not the case. But um, just to kind of put this in perspective, so we talked, I think, a couple episodes back about how there's this hierarchy of a resolution in the chip making process. The best, the, the highest resolution chips in the world are made at TSMC. They're three nanometer chips. So essentially these are these have features that you need three nanometer resolution to create. And those all go to the iPhone. Uh, next level up is five nanometers. We talked about that. That's the NVIDIA H100. And then there's seven nanometers, the NVIDIA A100. Okay. Those all require um, a special kind of device called an extreme UV lithography machine. Those devices are only manufactured by a Dutch company called ASML. So way, way above that is the 28 nanometer um, uh, process. Essentially, you can imagine we need lithography machines that can uh, that, that can make 28 nanometer chips. These are going to be much less advanced than the lithography machines that allow us to make um, uh, to make three nanometer chips or five or seven nanometer chips. They're, they're much more clunky. Still though, it's impressive that China um, managed to make a breakthrough, it seems, at this level to build their own uh, essentially homegrown lithography uh, 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 machine, um, essentially a device that fires a, a kind of laser insanely high resolution, in this case at 28 nanometers, so far from the cutting edge, but it's more about the story of China starting to domesticate or, or um, uh, yeah, kind of um, bring home a full functioning supply chain for not just making chips, but making the machines that make chips, the, these lithography machines. And so that's what uh, Shanghai Microelectronics Equipment, this company SME as it's sometimes called, has just pulled off. Um, this is another big breakthrough. Like 
pretty impressive. Previously, the best they had was a, a 90 nanometer machine. So that's you know a, a lot a lot clunkier. So they're definitely making progress. And um, the kind of thing that you start to look at, you know, when you think about policy, like what should we be exporting to China? Uh, what could we do to interfere with further progress as they now climb down? I mean, the next level below 28 nanometers probably is a 14 nanometer type uh, process, I would guess, or you know, something something in that orbit. Um, and that you're starting to get, you know, just one one iteration uh, above of uh, the uh, Nvidia A100 level. So pretty impressive. Uh, it's it's the continued march of of China trying to figure out how they can domesticate this uh, this very complex sup supply chain for making uh, advanced chips. Right. Um, there are actually export regulations from the U.S., Netherlands, Japan, and Taiwan. So it affects quite a few countries, not just the U.S., as we often talk about. And yeah, I think we'll actually talk more about the policy implications in the policy section. But to finish up a couple more research uh, works, like I said, we have a lot this week. Uh, we have an article, LLMs can't self-correct in reasoning tasks. DeepMind study finds, this is about the paper, large language models cannot self-correct reasoning yet. And this is about this idea of self-correction that has been established in prior work, where essentially you have a language model generate some answer to some question, and then you tell it, review your previous answer and find problems with it. And then you tell it, based on the problems you found, improve your answer. And this was you know, kind of explored as a possible way to make LLMs work better for things like reasoning or you know, math problems or various things that aren't just, let's say, answering a question or something. And yeah, so this paper explored that technique more deeply and found that in general, it often doesn't work when you don't tell the model kind of why or how you got things wrong. Um, pretty much, yeah. So most of the time it doesn't work and it seems like we need what what they found is you need external sources of knowledge to check against for instance retrieval or web search so good insights useful for working with language models yeah i'm always intrigued by by that that last word in the title large language models cannot self-correct reasoning yet and the implication there if you're wondering about like what the yet is getting at usually when you see that it implies at this level of scale Right, or you know, with current techniques, but but a big part of it is at this level of scale, and so you know we've seen this a lot where emergent capabilities just pop up when you scale up more. It may be the case, or it may not be the case with language models that the self-correction thing you know shows up. Maybe there is something fundamental about the model's access to information. You know, it just it it can't reason better with you know if you prompt it without prompting it with new information that it didn't have at its fingertips so to speak um, so that could be a fundamental thing or it could not be and, and I think that's uh, the implication at least of this title is they 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 are not sure that it is a fundamental thing and that, that you know perhaps with some fairly straightforward uh, advances this could be fixed um, but yeah the the external database is, is one quick and dirty way to uh, to fix this sort of thing but it, it points to to just like the, the complexity, the challenge of even assessing where we're at with these systems, right? It's like 
how close are we to human level intelligence? Like really, really hard to know. The failure modes of these systems are so alien. Like they fail in ways that like, you know, human children just don't fail on their on their way to adult human intelligence. And um, and so it's really difficult to like look at these things and say, oh, we are here versus not here or, or whatever. So a really interesting entry. And I think what's shaping up to be a, a very important debate on just the current status and promise of large language models. And to cover just one more paper before we move on, we have fine-tuning aligned language models compromises safety even when users do not intend to. So this is very much about the topic of if you release a language model that is aligned, so you kind of train it to not do bad things, broadly speaking, this paper shows that it's very cheap and very easy to do a little bit more training and undo all that alignment. And even more interestingly, if you just train it for some task that you have, you just train it on some more data unrelated to alignment on unsafe or not, like you train it to know about you know, very esoteric topics or something, you like know the language of Star Trek or something, it still degrades its ability to be aligned and safe. Uh, so yeah, this, this has pretty significant implications on whether you should release models that are aligned because effectively, if you release the weights and give the ability to train, alignment doesn't matter. It doesn't really mean that the model is safe. Yeah, and this is so interesting. It seems like an instance of like uh, catastrophic forgetting, right? That we've, we've. I think we've talked about this before, but anyway, basically it's this concept, this very concept, right? If you you take a model and you've trained it to understand some stuff, and then you fine tune it on something else, it will in that process often forget some of the stuff that it once knew, and um, and that's just because it's it's hard to rejig those those weights, those parameter values without losing some of the, the knowledge that was encoded in them previously uh, through training. And so, yeah, I mean, I think this is kind of an instance of that. It also suggests that like, there seems to be implicitly a kind of hierarchy, right? To like, what knowledge and behaviors are embedded and at what level in these, in these language models, right? Like it seems like the alignment piece really is received by the model at a at a le lower level of depth than the actual knowledge of like how to write offensive outputs and things like that um, and that correspondingly it's that much easier to like get just get rid of the the uh, alignment by jailbreaking or just like fine-tuning the guardrails out um, they were saying so this fascinating uh, sentence in the abstract they say for instance we jailbreak GPT5 uh, GPT 3.5's turbo Geez, let me try that again. We jailbreak GPT 3.5 Turbo's safety guardrails by fine-tuning it on only 10 examples at a cost of less than 20 cents via OpenAI's APIs. And so, um, you know, just showing how much leverage you can get out of, of just the wrong kind of training, so to speak. Yeah, and uh, they also mentioned... With regards to that, GPT 3.5 isn't open source, but they do have the capability to fine tune and make your own version of a model, you know, via the web. Uh, so one of the safety kind of uh, mechanisms you can imagine is if you provide access just via an API, you can sort of control what people are doing and make sure they don't do anything bad. But if you can fine tune it and very easily undo the safety. Uh, safeguards, maybe even not obviously, 
that has some important implications. And this paper does discuss them. Uh, they discuss how most of the discussion about uh, regulation has been focused about the sort of pre-deployment licensing and testing, where you show your model is safe or not. But if you can just change the model and make it not safe, all of that kind of goes out the window, or at least partially does. So some important questions introduced by these results. Um, up next, we have our policy and safety section, and we start with RISC-V technology emerges as battleground in US-China tech war. And we haven't really talked about risk uh, on this. Well, we've talked about risk with a K. We haven't talked about risk with a C, and that's what this is. So um, risk, so R-I-S-C-V, that's how you write it, but you pronounce it RISC-V. Um, this is an open source uh, technology. And it's essentially what it does is it serves as an interface between the hardware of like a semiconductor chip and the software that is actually going to give the chip instructions as to what to do. So RISC-V is what's known as an instruction set architecture. Basically, it's a, a library of functions that convert um, more sort of intuitive human understandable code into like like machine code that gets executed on the physical hardware uh, on the microprocessor. So um, this is a pretty inglorious function. A lot of people don't know about this stage in the kind of life cycle of, of AI hardware, um, but it's really important. The, the big competitor right now to RISC-V, uh, again, which is open source, is ARM, ARM Holdings. So ARM is this um, uh, British company, and, and they do all their stuff in a proprietary way, they massively dominate the uh, the um, ISA, the instruction set architecture market for phones and uh, for CPUs and things like that. And so RISC-V, though, is now starting to make real inroads. And there's this issue that um, you know, it's, it's a lot harder to regulate if it's open source. And in particular, China, which is looking for every opportunity to leapfrog the US or get into the, the kind of AI hardware game and, and generally just own as much of the stack as they can internally, um, they're turning to RISC-V as an open source alternative to ARM because it's harder to control. And uh, that means that they can effectively skirt U.S. export control regulations and also, you know, uh, any any regulation or any uh, measures, let's say, that the U.S. government's in a position to impose on ARM. Um, they can skirt around that just by using this open source software, or, or sorry, this open source, I should say, ISA, this uh, instruction set architecture. And so you've got a bunch of lawmakers in the U.S. Uh, really worried about the loophole that this creates. So we've had uh, Marco Rubio, Senator Marco Rubio, and then Mark Warner, who's a Democrat. Uh, Rubio's a Republican, Warner's a Democrat, so kind of bipartisan. They're both urging the Biden administration to look at RISC-V and saying, look, we have a national security issue here to the extent that we think that it is a national security risk for China to have a homegrown um, kind of supply chain for these you know, more advanced chips, uh, we have to start to think about these instruction set architecture uh, kind of uh, uh, elements as being a key part of our uh, our national security strategy and, and preventing choking off access to those systems uh, to Beijing. So uh, ironically, the funny thing about this is that uh, originally RISC-V was, uh, research on RISC-V was like, I think it, it was uh, spearheaded by like the US, uh, maybe maybe DARPA and things like that. So this is really, um, if, if I'm getting that right, I'm, I'm pretty sure that's what happened. This is sort of an ironic twist, unfortunately, for the US in this whole story. 
Right. And it, again, to highlight how significant this chip conflict, so to speak, is, right? All of that is deeply related to AI because chips and hardware are so essential to AI. And there's many dimensions, many things going on with, you know, advancing technology and access to technologies, export controls, all of that. So that's why we've been talking about it so much. And that's why we probably will make a special episode just to delve specifically into it because it's such a rich topic. Yeah. And actually, sorry, just a last quick note on the specific measures that they're looking at. Um, so there's uh, Mike Gallagher, who's the chairman of the House Select Committee on China, um, says he said the Commerce Department needs to, quote, require any American person or company to receive an export license prior to engaging with the People's Republic of China, uh, with entities in China on uh, Risk Five technology. So any kind of collaboration or partnership there uh, is, is kind of coming into focus. So it'll be interesting to see if you know, if that makes a difference, if it's, uh, you know, how much leverage there is in, in that particular part of the, the stack. And on to the next story, also related to lawmakers, Meta and X questioned by lawmakers over lack of rules against AI-generated political deepfakes. So two Democratic members of Congress sent a letter expressing concerns about the emergence of AI-generated political ads and asking for explanations of any rules being crafted to curbed the harms of free and fair elections. There is a lot of precedent for this where uh, Meta in particular and also Twitter have had special measures to prevent political misinformation, uh, especially in the context of elections. And this is a new dimension of it that is quite important. Uh, Google has already announced that it will impose new labels on deceptive AI-generated political advertisements, but it seems that Meta and X have not responded to requests for comments. So yet another sort of concern, really, and, and one of these things where this is one of the safety implications of AI. As you get better and better generation of images and videos, you will expect more and more misinformation. And clearly, elections is one of these things where misinformation can have a big impact. Yeah. And uh, obviously the looming 2024 election is is very, well, is looming large in a lot of people's minds. And you know, what are we going to see there? There was a you know, famously a Republican political ad that was AI generated that kind of is, is at the, the center of a lot of the discussion around this stuff. Um, I think one really interesting little detail. So Amy Klobuchar, who's a senator uh, well, in the U.S. Senate, um, she referred to this um, this idea that one of the proposals that's been floated uh, is that companies should uh, be required to add notices that campaign ads contain AI-generated content. And she, she, she was referring to that requirement and saying, well, look, that's like the bare minimum. Like basically, we need to see quite a bit more than that. I think it's interesting that she seems to be pushing like the idea that we need even more regulation than necessarily is being suggested at the early stages here um, in a context where she is also co-sponsoring another bill that is uh, being referred to as the light touch bill on AI regulation where companies would be responsible for just self-evaluating on uh, we talked about this bill I think last episode but self-evaluating uh, when it comes to the kind of ethics and safety and, and so on of their models and so uh, it's sort of interesting to see her apply this nuance for, for some reason 
reason she's she's very kind of pushing for more regulation on on this one. Maybe a lighter touch on some other things. Um, I don't know. I you know, as much as I may agree or disagree with different things here, it's just nice to see somebody who uh, who's approaching this maybe with some nuance, if that is in fact what's happening. But just uh, anyway, she's clearly drawing some kind of uh, finer line here than is immediately obvious in the in the context of the article. Right. Yes. The bill is actually going to ban materially deceptive deepfakes related to the federal candidates. And in fact, there was already an ad uh, aired by the Republican National Committee that made use of AI-generated photos that sort of portrayed the hypothetical future of the U.S. if President uh, Biden was reelected with various you know, bad things, and that may be banned under this rule. So we'll see. Uh, but uh, again, deepfakes is one of these uh, perpetual topics in AI, and as the tech keeps getting better and better, we'll probably keep talking about it more and more. And now moving on to our lightning round, and we're actually going to open this with a story that was brought to my attention by, I think I mentioned him earlier today, Mike Justice. I hope I'm saying your last name right there, Justice. Uh, sorry, Mike rather. Um, but uh, yeah, so Mike is a, a lawyer at um, uh, at a, a law firm called Catten, K-A-T-T-E-N. Anyway, he was uh, flagging this, this write-up that he'd done, which I found really interesting, um, looking at one of the, the bellwether uh, AI copyright cases that's come out. It's called Five Takeaways from Bellwether AI Copyright Case. And this is a case of Thomson Reuters uh, versus Ross Intelligence. And it's the first summary judgment that we have that looks at fair use of copyrighted material to train generative AI models. And um, and, and so it kind of gives us an early glimpse into how the, the legal system is starting, how judges are starting to think about, you know, what does it mean to infringe on copyright in, in this context? Um, and anyway, there are a couple of big take-homes. Uh, th this whole case, by the way, revolves around the allegedly unauthorized use of content from, uh, from Thomson Reuters um, uh, res legal research database. They have this database of legal research, and supposedly Ross trained their generative AI model on that data. And there's this concern that like, well, now is that is that bot going to be spitting out copyrighted material? Um, and I think it's kind of interesting, by the way, that this case doesn't involve open AI. It's like the one of the first ones that's approaching the finish line, and yet it's not an open AI case. Um, I personally find that sort of surprising just because of how, uh, how ahead of things. But uh, poor Ross Intelligence is finding itself in the, in the hot seat now. Um, there were yeah a couple of inter interesting take homes here. Um, essentially, uh, one is like okay, we, we don't have a conclusion by the way, but the judge laid out the factors that would go into making a conclusion, and one of them is public benefit, and that's really unclear here. They're they're saying look, uh, we don't know yet how transformative this uh, capability is going to be. Um, can the public use it for free? Does it discourage other creators? By as as the article puts it, swallowing up their markets. Um, in other words, you know, are, are we really discouraging cr the creative act, which is which would be counterproductive to what the justice system is supposed to do? And so that public benefit piece is is emerging as a really important pillar. Um, there's also really interesting nuance introduced in terms of the difference between uh, unprotectable facts and ideas, so facts and ideas that can't be copywritten, and protectable creative expression. And the argument that the judge was making was like, look, you know, by and large, the more your content, the more the, the generated content differs from the original training data set, 
um, the the safer you are from a copyright perspective. And uh, you know, so that's kind of intuitively makes sense. Um, but uh, but anyway, it's interesting to see it enshrined here. And, and just the last thing that I'll flag is this this um, concept. Uh, and, and Mike actually explained this to me when, when I spoke to him, but he was saying, look, uh, there's this interesting debate over whether the language models are kind of memorizing, essentially, the, the text that they're reading, uh, in which case, if they are memorizing that text um, and they can recite it verbatim, does that not imply that they copied it, that, that they, they truly copied the text that they're reading? And uh, the argument uh, apparently is that this is actually okay. It, it's often okay to replicate even copyrighted material as long as that replication is just an intermediate step on the way to producing something original. And I can't exactly remember it, but Mike, when we spoke, he gave me this example of like, I think it was like somebody reverse engineering like a, a Sony or Atari game to figure out how to make new games that could plug into Sony hardware. And he was saying like, look, as long as you don't directly commercialize your replica, you're fine. Um, you just have to make sure that you're making kind of new new stuff. So all these really interesting nuances that um, you know, I, I hadn't uh, realized were already this far along in, in the kind of legal debate process. And uh, yeah, Ross Intelligence versus Thomson Reuters. It, uh, it may not roll off the tongue, but it's definitely going to be an interesting, uh, an interesting legal case to follow. The court indicated that a jury trial is set for May 2024, so not for a while. And as we've talked about, there are quite a few lawsuits against OpenAI that are dealing with <laughs> yeah. a lot of the same topics. So probably in not too long, we'll be talking about a lot of legal stuff. And <laughs> that'll be maybe a bit of a challenge we'll, given... We'll do the, a legal special. <laughs> yes, yes. Our next story is that AI could soon need as much electricity as an entire country. So this is a peer-reviewed analysis that estimated that by 2027, AI servers could consume between 85 to 138 terawatt hours terawatt hours of electricity that is similar to countries like Argentina, the Netherlands, or Sweden. And as this says, that's a lot of electricity, right? And uh, that <laughs> was going to stress out our infrastructures, I guess, as far as how much electricity we need to produce. Yeah, about half a percent of the world's current electricity use, apparently. So these are like really big numbers. Um, it's you know no no coincidence that every time you see a big data center uh, build from Microsoft or Google or something like that, you will see at the same time some commitment to like green energy or, or whatever, um, and also interest from I think we talked about this last time. Microsoft is showing interest in using small modular uh, reactors, essentially small nuclear reactors, uh, to power their data centers, and this is really starting to become a major focus as. You know, when you zoom out, you start to realize more and more of humanity's uh, energy production is being directed to performing computations, matrix multiplication math on these uh, these obscure but very very important uh, pieces of of hardware, these these GPUs and, and other kinds of chips. So um, yeah, I mean, it's it's sort of fascinating. You know, we're like literally seeing in real time as humans offload our cognition to these systems, and basically nuclear. You're, you're seeing energy go from nuclear power plants to creating intelligence and. I just I, th I think that's just so fascinating, even from the standpoint of the history of the universe. Like we're at the point where energy is being turned into intelligence. That's a that's a, a like a physics thing that we're actually starting to do um, at 
planetary scale. It, it's pretty insane. Yeah. Uh, if you look at what we already have in 2022, data centers for all computers, including Amazon and, and Google, use about 1 to 1.3% of the world's electricity. And apparently crypto used another 0.4%. So if AI catches up to you know 0.5 in just a few years, that's pretty crazy. And the reason that's realistic is a, there's this projection of how many chips NVIDIA could ship. It says that maybe you know up to 1.5. Of course, these are still projections. And the thing 1. is, 1.5 on- million, by the way. 1.5 million, right? And GPUs, uh, you know, we already have a ton. Like the internet takes up a lot of compute, but these are CPUs typically. And AI stuff just takes a lot of compute. <laughs> GPUs, so that results in more electricity, in more expense, and yeah. So we'll see, you know, how it scales. The next story is government's race to regulate AI tools from Reuters, and this is pretty much just an overview of what a whole bunch of countries are doing: Australia, Britain, China, the EU, France, Italy. All of these countries have their own various ongoing regula- uh, efforts for regulation and, and other things. So we've discussed many of them. I don't think we need to go over the details here, but if you do want to sort of catch up on the state of regulation, in particular, especially in China and the EU, which have already, you know, are doing some pretty dramatic things with these sorts of things, uh, yeah, check this article out. Yeah, I, I will say one of the things that they uh, omitted from the article was any reference to Canada, because <laughs> we actually have a, um, uh, a bill called Bill C-27 that's um, going to be debated in, uh, or that has been debated, it's being sent to committee right now in Parliament, and it's got the AI and Data Act, which I believe currently is the first piece of legislation I'm aware of in the world that actually in- introduces prison time for reckless um, uh, deployment of AI systems, maybe reckless use as well. But it's a, a really interesting kind of um, uh, precedent-setting uh, piece of legislation potentially. And yeah, Canada not not on the list. So uh, maybe a, a little little fun fact there uh, if you end up reading the article. Uh, well, you know, who cares about Canada? Yeah, who gives a shit? <laughs> <laughs> Nobody cares. <laughs> Ouch. All right, up next we have U.S. curbs on chip tools to China nearly finalized government posting shows. So um, there's essentially way back in uh, on October 7th, 2022, so basically this time last year, uh, the U.S. introduced a bunch of export control restrictions for, uh, for chip-making tools that kind of uh, apply to U.S. industry, and, and NVIDIA has, has been a really big um kind of uh, what receiver, let, let's say, of these restrictions, um, that's forced them to design new kinds of GPUs, the NVIDIA A- A800 instead of their A100, and their H800 instead of their H100. And um, one of the, the really kind of key aspects of those export controls uh, has been that they're concerned with like the interconnect bandwidth between these chips. So you know there are operations that you do on these chips that involve 
um, matrix multiplications, and it's very easy to send those operations to different chips to have them do them in parallel. And that's great. But then at some point, you got to pool that stuff back together to kind of continue with your, your training process. And that pooling stage requires communication between the chips. And it turns out to be a a bottleneck. And for a while, US export control, um, actually currently, I believe, US, US export control uh, rules rely on that bottleneck. They say, look, you're not allowed to have an interconnect bandwidth that's above, I think it's 600 gigabytes per second. Um, so that's a that's a, an interesting constraint. But unfortunately, and this is based on the analysis we've done at Gladstone and, and talking to some of the top AI hardware specialists that we deal with, it just turns out not to be like an effective constraint. And that's because it turns out that you can just get around it by using more GPUs. And um, according to the experts that we work with, it just introduces like a 30% tax on your GPU pool. So the idea is like you need just 30% more GPUs to train an equivalent model if your interconnect is capped in the way US rules currently require for, uh, for GPUs sent to China. And so the reality is, you know, if you're China and you've made it a national strategic policy priority to train frontier models, like a 30% tax just it doesn't matter. It doesn't even register. And so, you know, by this analysis, if you if you buy into that, then um, NVIDIA is sending very powerful GPUs to China uh, in a context where, as far as I can tell from the information I've seen and the folks I've talked to, these GPUs may well be capable of supporting GPT-4 and even GPT-5 level training runs with all the national security implications that come with that. Um, and But it, it actually gets somewhat worse too, because at this point, you know, looking at the current environment, uh, a reasonable person would probably expect that stronger export controls are on the way. And if, uh, if NVIDIA thinks that, you know, if they think that's the case, then they face incentives to ship as many GPUs to China as they possibly can while their window is open, right? So like the risk is that NVIDIA has this incredible incentive to not only ship potentially dangerous hardware to China, but to preferentially ship that hardware to China uh, in order to get as much out of that market as they can before the export control window closes. Um, and so for context, actually, uh, as it stands, and this is just based on public information, uh, NVIDIA has committed to ship like 100,000 GPUs to various Chinese companies. Um, that's just in the second half of this year, of 2023. If you think about it, that is 4,000 GPUs per week this year. And um, based on other public orders that we're aware of, if you're, if you're looking at about, um, if you're looking at 2024, that's about 10,000 GPUs per week that NVIDIA will be shipping during all of 2024. So we go from 4,000 per week uh, in the second half of 2023 to 10,000 per week during all of 2024. And probably those 2024 ones are going to be, you know, the H800s, like, the, you know, not, not the A800s. We're, we're looking at not only more, but also much more powerful systems. Um, so realistically, we're kind of going to be shipping, like right now we're shipping about one GPT-4 equivalent of compute every four weeks to China now. And if my math is right, that's going to go up to well over one GPT-4 equivalent every week in 2024. And that's just based on, you know, only a couple of orders that were published in the news. So this is probably a minimum estimate. Um, so anyway, as so many politicians and like analysts are saying, if you think of GPUs as the fissile material 
of AI, then you could absolutely argue that what we're doing here is you know, kind of arming our adversary. And you know that's why there's so much interest in tightening up these loopholes. And, and we'll have to see if that's what ends up happening. But at least right now, it seems to be in the cards, at least based on the story. Right. As they pass, you know, if you need to smuggle money into China, soon enough it might be that you just want to smuggle GPUs. <laughs> GPUs, that's the way to do it. Right. On to our last section, synthetic media and art. The first story is WGA ratifies three-year deal with studios ending Hollywood strikes. So we've been covering this. The Writers Guild of America has been on strike for months with part of the discussion being around AI. And the request was that AI cannot write or rewrite literary material, can't be used as source material, MBA-covered material can't be used to train AI, and uh, these sorts of things. So now that strike has come to an end there is now a deal and as we discussed i think maybe last episode on the ai front the deal actually does include a lot of what they wanted that ai cannot be listed as a co-offer for instance cannot be credited as an offer which has implications for wages and things like that uh so yeah it's it's pretty important to be aware of because as kind of the first really large-scale strike and labor effort to make kind of, I guess, restrictions on AI in a particular professional sector, this may be setting a bit of a precedent. And I would not be surprised if we will see something similar for actors who are currently on strike and potentially other labor sectors in the future. Yeah, that's a really good point. The SAG strike is is like Screen Actors Guild strike is... I, I'm confused about where, where we are in that process, but it seems like it's advancing and kind of similar things. Um, yeah, I mean, hugely precedent setting and just weird, you know, in, in retrospect, I remember back in like 2015, people were saying like, oh, well, you know, the, the artists are going to be the last ones to get automated away or to face pressure from automation. And I, I just, I, I feel, I feel for these folks because it's like, it really does seem to be the, the, the first thing to go. And um, interesting that they find themselves in this position. Uh, and uh, yeah, we'll, we'll be tracking the, the SAG strike and, and negotiation process, I'm sure in, in future episodes as well. Moving on, we have AI watermarks are no match for attackers. So we've talking about watermarks for quite a bit. The idea of watermarks is you can basically place some sort of invisible code or invisible you know, uh, signal inside an image or text that allows you to verify whether it was AI generated or not. And so researchers have demonstrated that attackers can remove watermarks from AI-generated images and even add watermarks to human-generated images, basically meaning that for now, this is not very kind of safe to assume that we could watermark AI-generated images to be able to tell if something is a deepfake or not. Yeah, and it's it's all part of this this question, this eternal question, it seems, about whether you know the offense or, or defense side is going to win out in, when it comes to uh, to AI generated stuff, uh, images and text. And um, yeah, I, I think you know, we've talked about this in the past, but my suspicion is in the long run, um, it becomes really 
possible to detect these things just because the generation models become so good at at replicating the statistical patterns that exist in real world data that it's just like you know we're already seeing it with text where you need really long strings of text before you have any real shot at, at detecting stuff. Um, but watermarking is an interesting way to kind of break through that. You know, maybe you can embed artificially things in your images, but then there's going to be the whole watermarking removal uh, game plan. And uh, and that's kind of part of what we're we're seeing here is people finding ways around that. So interesting, but uh, we'll see. We'll see if watermarking will survive the test of time. Right. Uh, the paper is actually titled Invisible Image Watermarks Are Provably Removable Using Generative AI. So pretty pretty strong results. And, and yeah. basically, <laughs> the idea is you add some noise to the image and you reconstruct it, but just without the watermark. So it's a very general technique as well. So we'll see. And in fact, related to that, uh, this is kind of a research front, but also very related to the topic of synthetic media. Stable Signature, a new method for watermarking images created by open source generative AI. This is from Facebook AI Research and INRIA, and this is a new method for watermarking images. It's invisible to the naked eye, but can be detected by algorithms. It's robust to cropping, compressing, and changing colors, but probably not robust to the thing we just discussed. So I guess it's good that we have these because if you do have Adobe or someone providing a service, unless you have an attacker trying to fool you, if it's just like someone posting something on Twitter, then these watermarks will actually be very useful. And that's a really good point. I mean, I think there's a you know, a, a truism in safety or sorry, in security where, you know, people say, look, it, it's, it's not a matter of, of achieving perfect security. That's never going to happen. You're trying to make it that much harder for people to do it cheaply. And, and that does make a difference. Um, though it is like slightly funny that these, these poor, um, Facebook AI researchers had to publish their paper at the same time <laughs> or the same week, roughly as like the, the, the proof that watermarks don't work. Um, so the paper uh, is actually, uh, like two months old, but the, the article oh, came it? out oh, at, at okay. a humorously similar timing, yeah. Well, so they were able to celebrate a little bit at least. Yeah. And on to the lightning round with just a couple stories. The first one is how an AI deepfake ad of Mr. Beast ended up on TikTok. So this was a very kind of widely discussed example of deepfakes. Uh, Mr. Beast, a very famous YouTuber, uh, had a deep fake of him be on TikTok offering viewers an iPhone 15 Pro for $2. And this is a scam, right? Uh, we will see a lot of these. And it slipped past the uh, moderation technology that should prevent uh, deep fakes. It was removed within a few hours for violating its advertising policy. But it's yet another example of a high-profile celebrity being deepfaked to to do something. Do they say how many? I'm going through the article right now. I, I don't see a reference to how many people specifically had seen it by the time it was taken down. I mean, it's TikTok, so my guess is the damage was kind of done. Yeah, I, I'm not seeing that, but it's probably probably safe to say it. A lot. God's <laughs> team, yes. Yeah, I mean, uh, just just wild and and it's surprising too like you know you'd, you'd think um i don't know you I, I guess you'd think that it'd be possible for um uh, automatic 
uh, content moderation tools now to pick up stuff like this. But you know, maybe maybe it's not necessarily as obvious what makes something scammy. Um, you know, maybe that's a harder thing to to train into these systems. But hopefully, this will serve as a good training example for the uh, for for like some automated um, uh, scam detection technology. Right. You can go to the article and actually see the video that was reposted on Twitter. And as you might imagine, it's just looking at it, it's not clear that it's AI. It's just that good now if you just do face swap or even voice uh, synthesis, you can make it so it people can't really tell. So now you need your skepticism sensor to be pretty high up, right? Uh, we all do, I suppose. Yeah. And for our last story, Disney's Loki faces backlash over reported use of generative AI. Uh, so this is about a poster that got released for VTV show uh, Loki for its season two. And some internet sleuths looked at the poster and in particular the background image and found some aspects of it that looked like it was AI generated. Some sort of like weird little artifacts and pointless pixels and warping and things like that that you generally do see with text to image models. Interestingly, what actually got revealed is that this image was from Shutterstock. So it's not that the creators of a poster used text to image, rather they paid for it as a stock image and it wasn't labeled as being AI generated. And Shutterstock says that it's uh, you know, against their policy to post things and not make it clear that this is AI generated. So. An interesting example of how, A, you will have controversy if you use AI in your promotional material. Disney has already gotten in trouble for this with another TV show. And also how people may accidentally use AI-generated stuff and you know get found out, I guess. Yeah. I mean, it's sort of funny to think about that hot potato getting passed you know, from... Um... Uh, from Disney, then onto Shutterstock, all of a sudden, when the story just pivots, and you're like, "Oh, wait a minute!" Like, actually, Shutterstock uh, seems to be kind of violating their uh, their terms and, and conditions. This, yeah, very interesting, and shows you the kind of sleuthing too that you have to get up to. The sorts of artifacts that you have to look out for. You know, we've talked about these on the show before a lot, but like you can see here, kind of like the you know the, the Roman numerals, they they don't make sense. Um, there's this kind of clock-like uh, shape in the background of the the, the poster here, and uh, then they're you know they're just kind of uh, numbers that are cut off in weird ways. And and anyway, and a, a four that's got like four, you know with Roman numerals, you don't write like four lines. You write a you know one and then a V for four. And here they have four lines, and so it's kind of that that sort of weirdness, right? So sort of interesting. Like it, it, you can actually see the logic in the error there, which is kind of kind of interesting as a as an artifact. But uh, still, too bad for Shutterstock. Don't think this was using Dali three. We <laughs> <laughs> right. use Dali three. Well, with that, we are finished. Thank you so much for listening to this week's episode of Last Week in AI. Once again, you can find the articles we discussed at lastweekin.ai. Please share and rate the podcast if you are a fan. But most of all, please do keep listening.